Well, hey, everybody, it is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. I'm thrilled to have you along for the ride. Uh, and by the way, a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. Every week we've got new people uh, sort of jumping in with us at Keystone, or maybe you're back for the first time in a long time. Um, and if that's you, you should know you've caught us right in the middle of an absolutely fascinating series at least I think so, uh, called Who is God? that explores what God has revealed to us about himself and how he wants us to relate to him through the authors of both the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. And as many of you know, uh, for these first few weeks, we've been exploring what God disclosed to the people of ancient Israel through what we refer to today as the Ten Commandments. And I'm telling you, it has been a lot of fun so far. More than a few of you have reached out um, and just said, man, this is, this is so incredible. And, and that is super encouraging to me and Bob and Ryan, uh, who've kind of been uh, co-teaching this series. Uh, in fact, um, for the benefit of those of you who are joining us for the first time, uh, what I want to do is take a few minutes and just sort of catch you up on where we've been so far, uh, because the series really kind of builds one week to the next. So uh, in week one, we began exploring a really surprising reality. Uh, and it goes like this, the Ten Commandments weren't given to the nation of Israel as a condition of a relationship with God. Uh, instead, they were given as confirmation of a relationship with God that they already had. In other words, God didn't give ancient Israel laws to follow so that they could become his people. Uh, he gives them instructions on how to live because they already were his people. Uh, and in week one, we summarized that concept, critical concept for us all to understand this way. With God, relationship precedes rules. And I know what you're thinking. This was not how you were introduced to faith. And I would answer, that's why we're doing the series. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, we went on to note that what was true for the people of ancient Israel is in fact true for followers of Jesus today. And practically what that means is that whenever a follower of Jesus reads a command in the New Testament that instructs them to do something or to not do something, uh, they need to remember that God only gives commands to people with whom he is already in relationship, people who he desires to relate to as a heavenly father. And, and okay, so at least for me, that raises a few interesting questions. Um, and if you're paying attention, you probably have the same questions, like when exactly did the children of Israel become God's people? And when can that happen for us? Uh, well, the author of the Old Testament narrative that we call Exodus, that's the second book in the Old Testament, records that it happened for the people of ancient Israel through a simple act of trust. And, and here's what I mean. Uh, while they were slaves in Egypt some 3,500 years ago, they did something that God had invited them to do, something that honestly would have seemed really strange to them at the time. Namely, they had to wipe the blood of a sacrificial lamb on the door frames of their homes. And when they did that one thing, they demonstrated in a tangible way that they trusted God to rescue them. They trusted God to be their savior. And the author of Exodus tells us that, when, that God responded to this act of trust. And they woke up the next morning with a new identity as a free people and as children of God. And now it's well worth noting that that reality, that, that God reached out in love and invites people to respond in trust, established a pattern that still holds true today. I mean, think about it. The way that someone becomes a child of God today is by trusting him to rescue them 
from the very real problems of sin and death through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. And unfortunately, um, he doesn't invite people in our generation to smear the blood of a sacrificed lamb on the door door frames of our homes, right? Because I'm pretty sure that our neighborhood associations would not be cool with that. And and neither would PETA, you know, the people for the ethical treatment of animals. They'd be like, "Uh, no, right? Uh, So we don't have to do that. But instead, he invites people like us to place our faith, to place our trust in the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God who in the accounts of his life we learn God sent to lift up and carry off the sins of the world. And we put our trust in that reality and what Jesus accomplished for us again when he died on the cross and rose from the grave. And the authors of the New Testament are clear when we do that one thing, when we respond to God's gift of love with an act of trust, we're given a new identity. And I love how Jesus first, one of Jesus' first disciples, a man named John, puts it right at the beginning of his account of Jesus' life. Here's what he writes. He says, yet to all who did receive, and the original text says him, but it's talking about Jesus. Yet to all, to all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And, and so that established, I think it's more than fair to say that God's commands to his people flow out of his love for his people. I mean, think about it, like if he cares about the marriages of his children, then it would make sense that he would give some instructions on how to build healthy marriages, and he does. And if he cares about how his kids are raising the next generation, then it would make sense that he would give them instructions on how to be better parents, which he does. And if he cares about the financial well-being of his children, and and if he understands that the way we relate to money often has a lot to do with the amount of peace that we can find in the midst of this life, it would make sense that he would coach his kids on how to best think about their money, which he does. I'm telling you, when you understand that God always puts relationship before rules, it can completely change how you experience his rules and really experience him. And I'm convinced that that's why that's the first and most foundational thing that we need to understand about who God is. It's the, it's the foundation of a relationship that we can build with him in this life, right here and right now. Okay, so that was week one, and the next two go a little quicker, I promise. You're like, what are we gonna talk about new today? I'm getting there, right? Uh, so that established, we spent the past two weeks uh, exploring three specific warnings that God gave to his people in the first, of the th- first three of the 10 commandments. Um, And I made a slide to kind of summarize, but he begins by telling them that he is to be their one and only God. They came out of Egypt. There were countless gods in Egypt, countless places people looked to for hope in times of trouble. God says, no, I need to be your one and only. I need to be the only and ultimate place that you look for guidance and hope in this life. And then then second, um, he forbids them from making images to represent him. Gods in the ancient world always were represented by images. And he says, I am beyond images. There is no image that can capture the fullness of who I am. And so the danger, if you make an image of me, you will reduce me. And if you reduce me, then you may come to suspect that I'm too small to provide you with the comfort that you really need. But I am the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. Did you all see the pictures from the telescope this week? There's just this sense of awe and wonder 
that the God who created all of that wants to be in relationship with us. My family and I were out at the beach um, at Maranatha, which is a, a camp I was teaching this week. By the way, this is my seventh talk this week, so I'm kind of the sermonator this week. Get it done. Anyway, right. Uh, but, but there was this moment where I'm watching the sunset and I'm thinking about those pictures that I, that I saw earlier that day from the space telescope. And I just thought, it is so beyond amazing that the God that created all of that wants to be in relationship with us. It was, I, had, I had a little moment. I needed a Kleenex, just to be totally honest with you, right? Uh, but anyway, so one and only God, no images. And then number three, um, we talked about the, Bob talked about this last week. Uh, God says to the people, listen, I don't want you to misuse my name. Literally, you probably grew up in church, and if you did, you know, you know thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. And there was a particular application I was taught as a kid that, as it turns out, isn't the application, but that's okay. Um, don't misuse God's name. Basically, that means God does not want his people to associate his reputation with things with which he does not want to be associated. Uh, God wants his people to carry his name in our world in ways that honor both him and his heart for our world. So he says to the people, don't misuse my name. Okay, so that brings us to our conversation for today um, about the fourth commandment. And to be honest, it's, a, it's one that's a little bit surprising. And I, and I say that because at least initially, it seems really strange that God would include it in a list of the first 10 things that he tells his people. It's just really weird. It shows up on the list before super important things like do not murder and do not steal. And you're like, well, what possibly could be more important than do not murder and do not steal? Well, here's what God tells his people. Remember the Sabbath day. You're like, did not see that coming, right? By keeping it holy. Holy just means set apart or other or different. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall do no work. You shall not do any work. Neither you, and we get some detail here, nor your son or daughter, that makes sense, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, okay, that's a little weird, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. So God says, basically, one day out of six, I don't want you to work. I don't want your kids to work. I don't want anybody to work, not even your favorite pet donkey, even though he's faithful to work seven days a week, right? Everybody gets a day off. And so fun fact, the Hebrew word translated Sabbath in this passage is Shabbat. That's why you hear your Jewish friends say Shabbat Shalom on you know, Friday night to Saturday night. But uh, Shabbat is, uh, and Shabbat is an interesting word in Hebrew. It's a, it's a noun that comes from a verb that essentially means don't work. And if you think that it's a little odd that God would command his people to take a day off from work each week, wait till you hear how it would have sounded to them. I mean, come back with me and, and take a small walk in their sandals, right? I mean, the people who received this command had been slaves in Egypt. And slaves never got to punch out. They were valued, you might even say, as humans doing and not so much as human beings. I love that. I was excited all week to show you that, right? Yeah, they, they were just, they were parts of the machine of the economy of Egypt. They had little value other than what they could produce. Anyway, so this, this group of people um, had necessarily cultivated a very strong work ethic. I said differently, like in order to survive in Egypt, they never could stop working. 
But, but that was then, and this is now, and now they're standing at the base of Mount Sinai because of recent and largely unexpected divine intervention in their lives. And they found themselves not a nation of slaves, but a nation of nomads, kind of being led through an impossibly inhospitable desert by a God who they barely knew, who had clearly demonstrated power and a desire to be in relationship with them, but now who was asking them to do something that just seemed impossible. I mean, just to, to show you how ridiculous God's instructions would have sounded, I mean, just this photo, right, that Sarah Ann and I took, well, I, we didn't take it, someone else did, because that would be a really weird, how did we take that picture, right? But yeah, that we took in the Sinai Peninsula in the summer of 2019. I think when we took the picture, it was like 109 degrees. It was lovely, yeah, yeah. But I mean, this is, this is not just barren. I mean, this is desolate, desolate land. The deserts of the Sinai are brutal, even today. There's no shade unless you chase the shade created by mountains as the sun moves across the sky. And there's no water. Uh, and, and, and again, the afternoon sun can push temperatures well north of 100 degrees. So it's entirely conceivable that someone could die if they took a day of rest in the Sinai. Like food and water would have been almost impossible to find for a family, much less for like a nation-sized group of people. So when God commanded his children to take a 24-hour period away from work each week, a day to rest, the instructions just, again, had to seem impractical, if not impossible. And so the question that rises for me is like, would they have had any context? Did this thing come out of the blue, this idea of, of a Sabbath? Or, or, or was there something that may have given them at least a bit of context? And the answer to that is, is yes. Because a few weeks earlier, they had had another unexpected experience with God. Actually, it was an experience that showed up with amazing regularity after this one day that would give them a little bit of context for the request. And here's, here's what happened. Uh, when the children of Israel left Egypt, they had done so without a lot of preparation uh, and with only the food that they could carry. In fact, God even tells them when you make the bread, don't even wait for the bread to rise. Like, we're going to get out of here quickly. And so they would have just grabbed whatever food they could carry with them. And so as they exited the relative green of the Nile Delta for the barren wilderness of the Sinai, they realized that they were going to run out of food quickly. And, and they did what I would do. You are all better people than me, but I tell you what I would do uh, than what they did. They began to grumble and complain to Moses, who had got it appointed their leader about their situation, and even uh, going as far as to suggest to Moses and to God that it would have been better for them to have stayed slaves in Egypt. And Moses gets a little frustrated with that, but that's what they said. And, and then one morning, after much of the aforementioned grumbling and complaining, a really strange thing happened. Uh, the children of Israel woke up and looked out of their tents and saw something like little crusty pieces of well, something, all over the ground. And they called it manna, which is the Hebrew word that literally translates, what is it, right? And it actually reminds me of something my brother and I would say each Tuesday night when my mom, uh, that was experiment night at our house. That was the night you didn't want friends to come over, okay? It'd be like, oh, do you want Bobby to stay for dinner? And, and our first thought was, what day is it, right? Um, because my mom loves to cook and, and uh, like, like, likes to be challenged in cooking, so she subscribed to Bone Appetit magazine. 
okay? Which is really awesome if you like French cooking, but at eight years old and at six years old, my brother and I did not like French cooking, right? And so there was many a, uh, an evening we would sit down at the table and one of us would simply say, what is it, right? Like, if we had known the Hebrew, we might have just said manna, right? Um, anyway, back to the story, sorry. <clears throat> I'm just a little, little group therapy there. Um, now, <laughs> apparently, at least one adventurous soul in, in Israel was hungry enough to try the manna, whatever it was, and learned that it was pretty good, or at least not too bad. And uh, soon thereafter, the people of Israel learned that God intended to provide manna for his people as their daily bread from heaven. And if you're familiar with Jesus, some light bulbs should be going off in your head right now, right? Because he teaches his disciples to pray to God, give us this day our daily bread. That's a reference back to the manna. Um, And the manna came with some interesting instructions from God. Uh, God told his people, listen, only gather what you need for each day. Don't store up the manna. On Monday, don't get any for Tuesday. And on Tuesday, don't get any for Wednesday. I want to provide one day at a time with what you need. And, and so, not surprisingly, some of the people of ancient Israel didn't follow the rules. Can you imagine? There were Enneagram 8s way back then, if you know that, you know, the maverick type, right? And maybe they just didn't like rules, or maybe they just were afraid that God might get angry with them and stop the food supply. And so they thought, you know what, I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm going to store up for a rainy day, which is a bit of a joke because they're in the desert, there's no rain. But you know what I'm saying? Like, kind of store up for a time when they need it. And they took matters into their own hands and grabbed more manna than they could eat in a day. And the author of Exodus actually described what happened as a result. Here's what he tells us. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell, which is gross, right? But, but just notice that, that the manna that they had tried to store from one day to the next wouldn't stay fresh from one day to the next. And that was true each day of the week. Actually, it was true each day of the week except one day. Because strange as it sounds, on Friday, which to the Jews is the sixth day of the week, God had instructed Moses to have the people gather twice as much manna as on the other days. He says, I want you to gather enough for two days. Because as it turns out, God wanted to provide for his people's needs for seven days in six days. And Moses explained God's plan to the people this way. He said, he said to them, six days you are to gather it, the manna, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath there will not be any. Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath, and that is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. You say, okay, that's interesting, but then what do you you mean? He says, well, everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. And it's, it's worth noting that this resting, this rhythm of resting, the six and one and six and one, happened weeks before the command to honor the Sabbath. So God provided for the Sabbath even before he asked his children to honor the Sabbath. So in a weird way, the manna provided sort of a context for the command to honor the Sabbath. And the message was clear, if you think about it, like God wanted to be experienced as trustworthy. You say, who is God? 
the answer from the Sabbath? God is trustworthy. He wants his people to know that he would provide them with what they needed in order to survive each day. God, who is God? God is trustworthy. Okay, so, so this all raises a really interesting one-word question for me, right? And, and it goes like this, you know, why? And, and trustworthiness is, is part of the answer. But, I mean, why would God be so serious about teaching his people to trust him that he'd go as far as to, like, legislate a day each week when they had to trust him? Like, why not just suggest it to them? Like, what in the world was this about? Well, I'd argue that God knew the story of ancient Israel as it would play out going forward. And in that foreknowledge, he knew that one day, they, after their season in the wilderness had come to an end, they would cross into the promised land, the land that he had promised to their ancestor Abraham, a land flowing with milk and honey, which is just an, an ancient idiom for like a land of blessing and a land of bounty. And he knew that when that happened, when they took possession of that land, they would become a powerful nation with abundant crops and cities and armies and influence. And he knew on that day, right, when they were no longer nomadic, but they had established themselves as a nation, he knew that other nations around them were going to come to them for provision in their time of need. And they would have an opportunity to influence those nations as they met their needs. And he didn't ever want his people to forget that their nation had started with him and was ultimately dependent on him and had been given a mission by him to be a light unto the world. They were blessed in order to be a blessing. Their mission as a nation was to show the rest of the world what God was like. And so God says to his people, after rescuing them, I love you enough to give you a weekly reminder that I am the one who provides for you. And, and the reminder is simply a day when you aren't to produce anything. I want to give you a constant and visceral trust in and connection to me. And okay, so now if you're sitting here or you're joining us through the miracle of the interweb, and thanks again to Al Gore for his brilliant invention, right? Yeah. Um, I can't help but wonder how this strikes you. Because I was walking on the beach this week, wrestling down how all of this strikes me. And it's like when you try to filter the concept of a Sabbath through our lives and schedules, it's like we're not sure what to feel about it. Because if you're like most people, you probably think, well, I mean, that was great for them, but um, that's just not how our economy works today. It's like, dude, it's 2022. And in 2022, it seems like everything is open all the time. I mean, prior to the pandemic, even Meyer was open 24-7. And now I never know when they're open other than during the day, but whatever, right? Yeah, it's like, um, and have you ever heard of a company called Amazon? I mean, they don't take a millisecond off. And I think they track that, right? It's like in our modern world, stuff comes at us seven days a week. And there's always texts to respond to and emails to respond to and phone calls. No one calls anymore, but hypothetically, there might be a phone call, right, right you know, from somebody that needs to return seven days a week. So, so honestly, you know, if you're like me, you're thinking, I don't know what I can take from this and transplant into my life. And that's fair. But if that's what you're thinking, you need to know that 3,500 years ago, the children of Israel would have felt almost the same way, except for the Meyer and the Amazon and the phone calls, right? Yeah. In fact, um, by the time their nation was established in the land of Israel, and I think this is fascinating, they were already 
actively trying to work around this command. They got super forensic with it. Okay, what exactly did God say? And so sometimes they would find non-Jewish people that they could hire to do their work for them on the Sabbath. And other times um, they would uh, basically set up commercial activity just outside of the gates of their cities where work could be done for them. Because the fourth commandment, if you read it technically, it does say, you know, do not work in your city or don't hire foreigners to work inside your city walls. And so they're like, well, if we're outside the city walls and we're kind of, you know, there, there's our little workaround. It's like a loophole. And before you get too judgmental towards them, I mean, they were competing economically with other nations that work seven days a week. I mean, this idea of a day of rest was not common in the ancient world. And there were markets in their world where trade was happening seven days a week. And so the idea that for a whole nation, a whole day would go by without any work being done would have seemed like insanity to them. Like us, they were progress-driven. And to be fair, God is not opposed to progress or even being driven by progress. But I would argue he also wants his people to have confidence in and a relationship with him. And when those two things conflict, God wants his people to prioritize their confidence in him. And so he told the whole nation of Israel to take a day off each week. I had a buddy I was talking to at the, um, at the camp this week, and we were talking about how funny it is. They're like, who doesn't love a God who commands a day off? What a great God that is, right? Except for so many of us, that's not how we experienced the Sabbath, especially if you grew up in church. And so, okay, so uh, kind of turning a corner, I got to ask, is there anything here for us then and how we should think about God today, about who he is and about the sort of relationship that he wants with us? I mean, how, how might we consider applying the concept of the Sabbath in our lives. And it was a part of God's covenant with ancient Israel, right? As we talk about that a lot around here, it's, it's in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. And it's interesting because the command um, to keep the Sabbath isn't repeated by the authors of the New Testament. The other commands kind of are, right? Like, do not murder. Christians are like, yeah, we shouldn't do that. Or do not commit, a, you know, all these things that we're supposed to do. But Sabbath doesn't, doesn't show up. In fact, the authors of the New Testament suggest that for followers of Jesus, every day, is holy. We're like a set-apart people, and so every day we are to live set-apart. So there's no specific day of the week that's any more or less important than any other for followers of Jesus. But still, and this is, this is interesting, um, if my experience is any indication, there is incredible value in setting apart one day each week to remember and to reflect on your need for God. A day set apart from the others where you trust Him to provide what you need, and to remind yourself that he is faithful. Because again, who is God? He is faithful. He is trustworthy. And as I was walking the beach this week thinking about this, I kept thinking about friends in my life who practice what they would call a self-imposed rhythm of the Sabbath. One buddy said, it's not a burden, it's a blessing. It's not an obligation. It's a gift. And he told me that as counterintuitive as it sounds, He's like, as I stepped into the rhythm of Sabbath, I found myself vocationally getting more done in less time when practicing the Sabbath. Actually more productive in work after implementing a self-imposed application of the ancient principle of the Sabbath. And when I said, you know, why do you, why do you think that's the case? They, they said there's a couple different things going on. The first they said is, is like, it's almost like you create an artificial finish line for your work each week. 
And there's something about having an artificial finish line that you're, you're committed to honor that causes you to accelerate your focus and your pace as you approach that artificial finish line. So he says, I'm getting more done in less time. I'm actually finding space for a Sabbath. And they also said, um, this rhythm of Sabbath has been so catalytic to their faith. And I, and I pushed them on that. I said, you know, what, what is it there? And they said, well, it's almost like in submitting my schedule to a weekly Sabbath, I have this increased sense that I'm actively trusting God with my profession and with my income. I've just put up some boundaries on when I'm going to work and when I'm going to rest. One, one friend even, even told me recently that the Sabbath reminds them each week that they need to trust God, not only with their livelihoods, but with their lives and even with their relationships. Something like as you step off that hamster wheel of always producing and always producing and always producing, it's like there's a chance to just remember, okay, God, I, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you to provide for seven days in six days. And when we do that, it like stretches faith. And, and they would even say brings more peace to life because when you live with a sense that God is trustworthy and God is faithful, it's amazing how you experience storms of life from that perspective. And fear is not quite as quick to rise. And again, all that because they decided to trust God for seven days of provision after only six days of work. And they have found him to be faithful. And if you think about it, when the Sabbath command was given, it was given to a nation of farmers and shepherds and leaders, uh, people who would be tempted to think that they wouldn't survive if they didn't work every single day. And it was given to a group of people before the economy of the nation of Israel ever formed. And it wasn't given to a culture, you know, that was built on and established on a rhythm of taking a day off each week, just like our world isn't built around a rhythm of taking a day off each week. But it was given to a group of people whom God intended to use as a beacon of hope in a very dark world, a group who, in order to live into that mission, was going to have to learn to trust God. And that is still a principle that is true for followers of Jesus today. So I just got to ask you, um, is your life currently built around a rhythm where you remind yourself each week that everything you have and everything you produce ultimately comes from God. That, in fact, your ability to produce wealth comes from God. And if so, um, I'm convinced that you've already experienced the, the power of Sabbath. And you know that it's not really an obligation. It's a gift. And it was always supposed to be. But if maybe you're here and you've never had that experience, or you grew up in a church where the Sabbath was presented as a whole list of things that you couldn't do, and it felt like a curse and not a gift, or maybe you spent your childhood trying to find workarounds, you know, for all the rules of the Sabbath, and you sort of jettisoned the thing as soon as you possibly could. If that's you, then I would love to invite you to figure out a day each week which you can choose to leverage your free will to break the endless pursuit of more and instead set a day apart to remember that you really can trust God to provide not only for your daily bread, but for everything that you need. In other words, I invite you to consider establishing a rhythm of life where God can remind you each week that he is trustworthy. All right, now with that, um, I'd love to invite you, if you're here in the room, to stand 
and I'll close our time together in prayer. Mm. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that right at the heart of who you are um, is this reality of, of trustworthiness. You are trustworthy, you are faithful, and you desire us to experience you that way. And we, we live in a world where we love to store up for rainy days, and we can often end up with a false sense that, that we really don't need you. Uh, but we just confess um, that we know that when we come to the end of what we can influence, uh, when forces beyond our control visit our lives, we know that ultimately we are not in control and that you are. And so I pray for all of us that uh, as we wrestle down what to do with, with what we've learned, um, that your spirit would stir up within us a desire uh, to establish a rhythm each week where we can remind ourselves of who you are. Thank you that 2,000 years ago you sent your son as light in darkness to be our Sabbath, to be our Sabbath rest. And uh, we thank you and we will forever thank you for that gift. It is in that name, the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. And if you came and would like some prayer, we have some volunteers that would love to meet you under the screen. Otherwise, for the rest of you, we'll see you back here next week.